Section 7 of The Golden Bough, Part 1, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 2, by Sir James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 12, The Sacred Marriage, Subchapter 2, The Marriage of the Gods. Marriages of the Gods in Babylonia and Assyria At Babylon, the imposing sanctuary of Bel, rose like a pyramid above the city in a series of eight towers or stories, planted one on top of the other. On the highest tower, reached by an ascent which wound about all the rest, there stood a spacious temple, and in the temple a great bed, magnificently draped and cushioned, with a golden table beside it. In the temple no image was to be seen, and no human being passed the night there, save a single woman who, according to the Chaldean priests, the god chose from among all the women of Babylon. They said that the deity himself came into the temple at night and slept in the great bed, and the woman as a consort of the god might have no intercourse with mortal man. As Bella Babylon was identical with Marduk, the chief god of the city, the woman who thus shared his bed was doubtless one of the wives of Marduk, mentioned in the Code of Hammurabi. A colour which was for some time the caliph of Assyria before it was displaced by Nineveh, the marriage of the god Nabu appears to have been annually celebrated at the third of the month, Iyar or Ariu, which corresponded to May. For on that day his bed was consecrated in the city, and the god entered his bedchamber to return to his place on the following day. The ceremonies attended the consecration of the couch, are minutely described in a liturgical text. After the appropriate offerings had been presented, the officiating priests purified the feet of the divine image with a sprig of reed and a vessel of oil, approached the bed thrice, kissed the feet of the image, then retired and sat down. After that she burned cedar wood dipped in wine, set before the image the heart of a sheep wrapped in a cloth, and offered libations. Aromatic woods were consecrated and burnt. More libations and offerings were made. Tables were spread for various divinities, and the ceremony ended with a prayer to the king. The god also went in procession to a grove, riding in a chariot beside his charioteer. Marriage of the god Ammon to the Queen of Egypt At Thebes in Egypt, a woman slept in the temple of Ammon as a consort of the god, and like the human wife of Bel at Babylon, she was said to have no commerce with a man. In Egyptian texts, she is often mentioned as the divine consort, and usually she was no less a personage than the Queen of Egypt herself. For according to the Egyptians, their monarchs were actually begotten by the god Ammon, who was soon, for the time being, the form of the reigning king, and in that disguise had intercourse with the queen. The divine procreation is carved and painted in great detail on the walls of two of the oldest temples in Egypt, those of Deir el-Bahai and Luxor, and the inscriptions attached to the paintings leave no doubt as to the meaning of the scenes. The pictures at Deir el-Bahai, which represent the beginning and birth of the queen, had shot fitstul, and the more ancient had been reproduced with but little change at Luxor, where they represent the begetting and birth of King Amenophis III. The nativity is depicted in about fifteen scenes, which may be grouped in three acts. First, the carnal union of the god with the queen. Second, the birth. The third, the recognition of the infant by the gods. The marriage of Ammon with the queen is announced by a prologue in heaven. Ammon summons his ancestors. The gods of Heliopolis reveals to them the future birth of a new pharaoh, a royal princess, and requests them to make ready the fluid of life and of strength of which they are masters. 
Then the god is seen approaching the queen's bedchamber. In front of him marches Thoth, with a roll of papyrus in his hand, who, to prevent mistakes, recites the official names of the queen, the spouse of the reigning king, Thothmes I at Deir el-Bahari, Thothmes IV at Luxor, the fairest women. Then Thoth withdraws behind Ammon, lifting his arm behind the god in order to renew his vital fluid at this critical moment. Next, according to the inscription, the mystery of incarnation takes place. Ammon lays aside his godhead and becomes flesh in the likeness of the king, the human spouse of the queen. The consummation of the divine union follows immediately. On a bed of state, the god and the queen appear seated opposite each other, with their legs crossed. The queen receives from her husband the symbols of life and strength, while two goddesses, Neat and Silket, the patroness of matrimony, support the feet of the couple and guard them from harm. The text which encloses the scene sets forth clearly the reality of this mystic union of the human with the divine. The Saint Amun-Ra, king of the gods, lord of Karnak, he who rules over Thebes, when he took the form of this male, the king of Upper and Nether Egypt, Thothmes I, or Thothmes IV, giver of life. He found the queen then, when she lay in the glory of her palace. She awoke the fragrance of the god and marvelled at it. Straight away his majesty went towards her, took possession of her, placed his heart in her, and showed himself to her in his divine form. And upon his coming she was uplifted at the sight of his beauty. The love of the god ran through all her limbs, and the smell of the god and his breath were full of the perfumes of Pelnit. And thus saith the royal spouse, the royal mother Amasi, or Matamoa, in presence of the majesty of this glorious god, Ammon, lord of Karnak, lord of Thebes, twice great are thy souls. It is noble to behold thy countenance when thou joinest himself to my majesty at all grace. Thy dew impregnates all my limbs. Then when the majesty of the god had accompanied all his desire with her, Ammon, the lord of the two lands, said to her, She who is joined to Ammon, the first of the nobles, fairly, such shall be the name of the daughter who shall open thy womb, since such is the course of the words that come forth from thy mouth. She shall reign in righteousness in all the earth, for my soul is hers. Her heart is hers, my will is hers, my crown is hers. Truly, that she may rule over the two lands, that she may guide the souls of all living. Nativity of the Divine Egyptian Kings Represented on the Monuments After the begetting of the Divine Child, for we must remember that the kings and queens of Egypt were regarded as divinities in their lifetime, Another series of scenes represents the fashioning of its body and its birth. The god Konomau, who in the beginning of time moulded gods and men on his potter's wheel, is seen seated at his wheel, modelling the future king or queen and their doubles. There are spiritual duplicates or external souls which were believed to hover invisible about both men and gods all through life. In front of Konomau kneels Iquit, the frog-headed goddess, the great magician. She is holding out the newly created figures, the symbol of life, the crooks and sata, in order that they may breathe and live. Another scene represents the birth. Adair al-Bahari, the queen, has already been delivered, as presenting her daughter to several goddesses who have acted the part of midwives. At Luxor, the double of the royal infant is born first. The goddesses who serve as nurses have him in their arms, and the midwives are preparing to receive the real child. Behind the queen are the goddesses who watch over childbirth, led by Isis and Nephthys, and all around the spirits of the east, the west and the north, and the south, are presenting the symbol of life or uttering acclamations. In a corner of the grotesque god Bess and the female hippopotamus, Api, keep off all evil influence 
and every magnetic spirit. These representations probably copied from the life. We shall probably not err in assuming with some eminent authorities that the ceremonies of the nativity of the pharaohs thus emblazoned on the walls of Egyptian temples were copied from the life. In other words, that the carved and painted scenes represented a real drama, which was acted by masked men and women whenever a queen of Egypt was brought to bed. Here, as everywhere else in Egypt, said Professor Maspero, sculptor and painter did nothing but faithfully imitate reality. Theory required that the assimilation of the kings to the gods should be complete, so that every act of the royal life was, as it were, a tracing of the corresponding act of the divine life. From the moment that the king was Ammon, he wore the costume and badges of Ammon, the tall hat with the long plumes, the cross of life, the greyhound-headed scepter, and thus arrayed he presented himself in the queen's bedchamber to consummate the marriage. The assistants also assumed the costume and appearance of the divinities whom they incarnated. The men put on masks of jackals, hawks, and crocodiles, while the women donned masks of cows or frogs, according as they played the parts of Anubis, Konomo, Sovko, Hathor, or Hikrit. And I am disposed to believe that the doubles of the newborn child were represented by as many puppets as were required by the ceremonies. Some of the rites were complicated and must have tired excessively the mother and child who underwent them, but they are nothing to those who have been observed in similar circumstances in other lands. In general, we are bound to hold that all the pictures traced on the walls of the temples in which the person of the king is concerned correspond to a real action in which disguised personages played the part of gods. Human Wives of Ammon in the Decline of Egypt in the decline of Egypt from the 11th century onwards, the wives of Ammonite thieves were called on to play a conspicuous part in the government of the country. The strong grip of the pharaohs was relaxed, and under their feeble successors the empire crumbled away into a number of petty independent states. In this dissolution of the central authority, the crafty high priests of Ammonite thieves contrived to usurp regal powers and to reign far and wide in the name of the deity. Failing their rescripts, under the guise of oracles of the god, who, with the help of a little jugglery, complacently signified his assent to their wishes by nodding his head or even by speech. But curiously enough, under this pretended theocracy, the nominal ruler was not the priest himself, but his wife, the earthly consort of Ammon. Thus Thebes became for a time a ghostly principality governed ostensibly by a dynasty of female popes. Their office was hereditary, passing by rights from mother to daughter, but probably the entail was often booked by the policy or ambition of the men who stood behind the scenes and worked the religious puppet show by hidden wires to the awe and astonishment of the gaping vulgar. Certainly we know that on one occasion King Semeticus first foisted his own daughter into the Holy See by dedicating her to Ammon under a hypocritical profession of gratitude for favours bestowed on him by the deity and the female pope had to submit to the dictation with the best grace she could assume, protesting her affection for the adopted daughter who had ousted her own daughter from the throne. Human concubines of Ammon in Roman times At a later period when Egypt lay under the heel of Rome, the character of the divine consort of Ammon at Thebes had greatly changed. For at the beginning of our era, the custom was to appoint a young and beautiful girl, Scion of one of the noblest houses to serve Ammon as his concubine. The Greeks called these maidens Pallades, 
apparently after their own virgin goddess palace. But the conduct of the girls was by no means maidenly, for they led the loosest of lives till puberty. Then they were mourned over and given in marriage. Their graves were shown near Thebes. The reason why their services ended at puberty may have been that as concubines of the god, they might not bear children to mortal fathers, as it was deemed prudent to terminate their relations with the divinity before they were of an age to become mothers. It was an Egyptian doctrine that a mortal woman could conceive by a god, but that a goddess could not conceive by a mortal man. The certainty of maternity and the uncertainty of paternity suggest an obvious and probably sufficient ground for this theological distinction. Apollo and his prophetess Epatara Apollo was said to spend the winter months at Patara in Lycia and the summer months on the island of Delos, and accordingly he gave oracles for one half of the year in one place and for the other half in the other. So long as he tarried at Patara, his prophetess was shut up with him in the temple every night. The Essence of Artemis and Ephesus At Ephesus there was a college of sacred men called Essenes, or King Bees, who held office for a year in which they had to observe strict chastity and other rules of ceremonial purity. How many of them there were at a time we do not know, but there must have been several, for in the Ephesian inscriptions they are regularly referred to in the plural. They cannot have been bound to lifelong celibacy, for in one of the inscriptions the Essen mentions his wife. Possibly they were deemed the annual husbands of Artemis, the great many-breasted goddess of fertility at Ephesus, whose association with the bee is vouched for by the figures of bees which appear commonly both on her statues and on the coins of Ephesus. If this conjecture is right, the king bees and their bee goddess Artemis at Ephesus would be closely parallel to the king of the wood and his woodland goddess Diana at Nimai, as these latter are interpreted by me. The rule of chastity imposed on the king bees during their year of office would be easily explicable on this hypothesis. As the temporary husbands of the goddess, they would be expected for the time being to have no intercourse with mortal women, just as the human wives of Bel and Ammon were supposed to have no commerce with mortal men. Marriage of Dionysus to their queen at Athens At Athens, the god of the vine, Dionysus, was annually married to the queen, and it appears that the consummation of the divine union, as well as the espousals, were enacted at the ceremony but whether the part of the god was played by a man or an image we do not know. Adeclaw required that the queen should be a burgess, and should never have known any man but her husband. She had to offer certain sacred sacrifices on behalf of the state, and was permitted to see what no foreign woman might ever behold, and to enter where no other Athenian might set foot. She was assisted in the discharge of her solemn functions by fourteen sacred women, one for each of the altars of Dionysus, the old Dionysiac festival was held on the twelfth day of the month Anthestorian, corresponding roughly to our February, at the ancient sanctuary of Dionysus in the marshes, which was never opened throughout the year save on that one day. At this festival the queen exacted an oath of purity and chastity from the fourteen sacred women at the altar. Possibly her marriage was celebrated on the same day, though of that we have no positive evidence, and we learn from Aristotle that the ceremony took place not at the sanctuary in the marshes, but in the old official residence of the king, known as the cattle store, which stood near the Britannium or town hall on the northeastern slope of the Acropolis. But whatever the date of the wedding, its object can hardly have been any other than that of ensuring the fertility of the vines and other fruit trees of which Dionysus was the god. 
thus both in form and in meaning the ceremony would answer to the nuptials of the king and queen of may dionysus and ariadne again the story dear to poets and artists for the forsaken and sleeping ariadne waked and wedded by dionysus resembles so closely the little drama acted by french peasants of the alps on may day that considering the character of dionysus as a god of vegetation we can hardly help regarding it as the reflection of a spring ceremony like the french one in point of fact the marriage of dionysus and ariadne was believed by prelo to have been acted every spring in crete his evidence indeed is inconclusive but the view itself is probable if i am right in comparing the two the chief difference between the french and the greek ceremonies appears to have been that in the former the sleeper was a forsaken bridegroom in the latter a forsaken bride and the group of stars in the sky in which fancy saw ariadne's wedding crown may have been only a translation to heaven of the garland worn by the greek girl who played the queen of may marriage of zeus with demeter at Eleusis. If at Athens, and probably elsewhere, the vine god was married to a queen in order that the vines might be loaded with clusters of grapes, there is reason to think that a marriage of a different kind intended to make the fields wave with yellow corn was annually celebrated not many miles off, beyond the low hills that bound the plain of Athens on the west. In the great mystery solemnized at Eleusis in the month of September, the union of the sky god Zeus with the corn goddess Demeter, appears to have been represented by the union of the Hierophant with the priestess of Demeter, who acted the parts of god and goddess. But their intercourse is only dramatic or symbolical, for the Hierophant had temporarily deprived himself of his virility by an application of hemlock. The torches having been extinguished, the pair descended into a murky place, while the throng of worshippers awaited in anxious suspense the result of the mystic congress, which they believed their own salvation to depend. After a time, the Hierophant reappeared, and a blaze of light silently exhibited to the assembly a reaped ear of corn, the fruit of the divine marriage. Then, in a loud voice, he proclaimed, Queen Brimo has brought forth the sacred boy Brimos, by which he meant, the mighty one has brought forth the mighty. The corn mother, in fact, had given birth to her child, the corn and a travail pangs were enacted in the sacred drama. This revelation of the reaped corn appears to have been the crowning act of the mysteries. Thus through the glamour shed round these rites by the poetry and philosophy of later ages, there still looms, like a distant landscape, through a sunlit haze, a simple rustic festival, designed to cover the wide Elysian plain with a plenteous harvest, by winning the goddess of the corn to the sky god, who fertilised the bare earth with genial showers. Marriage of Zeus and Hera at Platania. But Zeus was not always a sky god, nor did he always marry the corn goddess. Even in antiquity, a traveller, quitting Elysius and passing through miles full of groves and cornfields, had climbed the pine clad mountains of Citheron and ascended through the forest on the northern slope to Platea. He might have chanced to find the people of that little Boeotian town celebrating a different marriage of the great god to a different goddess. The ceremony described by a Greek antiquary, whose notebook has fortunately preserved for us not a few rural customs of ancient Greece, of which knowledge would otherwise have perished. Every few years, the people of Plataea held a festival which they called the Little Daedala. On the day of the festival, they went out into an ancient oak forest 
the trees of which were of gigantic girth. There they set some boiled meat on the ground, and watched the birds that gathered round it. When a raven was observed to carry off a piece of the meat, and perched on an oak, the people followed it and cut down the tree. With the wood of the tree, they made an image, dressed it as a bride, and placed it on a bullock cart with the bridesmaid beside it. It seems then to have been drawn to the banks of the river Aesopus and back to the town, attended by a piping and dancing crowd. After the festival, the image was put away and kept till the celebration of the great Daedala, which fell only once in sixty years and was held by all the people of Boetia. On this occasion, all the images, fourteen in number, that had accumulated from the celebrations of little Daedala were dragged on wains in procession to the river Aesopus and then to the top of Mount Cithiron. There an altar had been constructed of square blocks of wood fitted together with brushwood heaped over it. Animals were sacrificed by being burned on the altar, and the altar itself, together with the images, was consumed by the flames. The blaze, we are told, rose to a prodigious height and was seen for many miles. To explain the origin of the festival, a story ran that once upon a time Hera had quarreled with Zeus and left him in high dungeon. To lure her back, Zeus gave out that he was about to marry the nymph Pletia, daughter of the river Esulpus. He had a fine oak cut down, shaped and dressed as a bride and conveyed on a bullock cart. Transported with rage and jealousy, Hera flew to the cart, and tearing off the veil of the pretended bride, discovered the deceit that had been practised on her. Her rage now turned to laughter, and she became reconciled to her husband Zeus. Resemblance of the Platean Ceremony to the Spring and Midsummer Festivals of Modern Europe The resemblance of this festival to some of the European Spring and Midsummer Festivals is tolerably close. We have seen that in Russia, at which suntide, the villagers go out into the wood, fell a birch tree, dress it in women's clothes, and bring it back to the village with dance and song. On the third day it is thrown into the water. Again we have seen that in Bohemia on Midsummer Eve, the village lads fell a tall fir or pine tree in the wood and set it up on a height where it is adorned with garlands, nosegays and ribbons, and afterwards burnt. The reason for burning the tree will appear afterwards. The custom itself is not uncommon in modern Europe. In some parts of the Pyrenees, a tall and slender tree is cut down on May Day and kept till Midsummer Eve. It is then rolled to the top of a hill, set up and burned. In Angoulême, on St. Peter's Day, the 29th of June, a tall leafy poplar is set up in the marketplace and burned. Near Longcastan, in Cornwall, there is a large tumulus known as White Barrow, with a foss round it. On the tumulus there was formerly a great bonfire on Midsummer Eve. A large summer pole was fixed in the centre, round which the fuel was heaped up. It had a large bush on top of it. Round this were parties of wrestlers contending for small prizes. The rustics believed that giants were buried in such mounds, and nothing would tempt them to disturb their bones. In Dublin on May morning, boys used to go out and cut a May bush, bring it back to town, and then burn it. All such ceremonies were originally magical rites, intended to bring about the effects which they dramatically represented. Probably the Boeotian festival belonged to the same class of rites. It represented the marriage of the powers of vegetation, the union of the yoke god with the yoke goddess, in spring or midsummer. Just as the same event is represented in modern Europe by a king and queen or a lord and lady of the May. In the Boeotian, as in the Russian ceremony, the tree dressed as a woman stands for the English maypole and may queen in one. All such ceremonies, and must be remembered, are not, or at least were not originally, 
mere spectacular or dramatic exhibitions they are magical rites designed to produce the effect which they dramatically set forth if the revival of vegetation in spring is mimicked by the awakening of a sleeper the mimicry is intended actually to quicken the growth of leaves and blossoms if the marriage of the powers of vegetation is simulated by a king and queen of may the idea is that the powers thus personated will really be rendered more productive by the ceremony in short all these spring and midsummer festivals fall under the head of homeopathic or imitative magic the thing which people wish to bring about they represent dramatically and the very representation is believed to affect or at least to contribute to the production of the desired result in the case of the daedala the story of hera's quarrel with zeus and her sullen retirement may perhaps without straining be interpreted as a mythical expression for a bad season and the failure of the crops the same disastrous effects were attributed to the anger and seclusion of demeter after the loss of her daughter Persephone. now the institution of a festival is often explained by a mythical story which relates how upon a particular occasion those very calamities occurred which it is the real object of the festival to avert so that if we know the myth told to account for the historical origin of the festival we can often infer from it the real intention with which the festival was celebrated if therefore the origin of the daedala was explained by a story of a failure of crops and consequent famine we may infer that the real object of the festival was to prevent the occurrence of such disasters and if i am right in my interpretation of the festival the object was supposed to be effected by dramatically representing the marriage of the divinities most concerned with the production of trees and plants the marriage of zeus and hera was acted at annual festivals in various parts of greece and it is at least a fair conjecture that the nature and intention of these ceremonies were such as i have assigned to the plataean festival of the daedala in other words that zeus and hera at these festivals were the greek equivalents of the lord and lady of the may homer's glowing picture of zeus and hera couched on fresh hyacinths and crocuses like milton's description of the delights of zephyr and aurora as he met her once a maying was perhaps painted from the life the god frey and his human wife in sweden the sacred marriage of zeus and hera had as was natural its counterpart among the northern kinsfolk of the greeks in sweden every year a life-size image of frey the god of fertility both animal and vegetable was drawn about the country in a wagon attended by a beautiful girl who was called the god's wife she acted also as his priestess in his great temple at Uppsala. wherever the wagon came with the image of the god and his blooming young bride the people crowded to meet them and offered sacrifices for a fruitful year once on a time a norwegian exile named gunnar helming gave himself out to be frey in person and rode about on a sacred wagon dressed up in the god's clothes everywhere the simple folk welcomed him as a deity and observed with wonder and delight that a god walked among men and ate and drank just like other people and when the months went by and the god's fair young wife was seen to be with child their joy waxed gratefully for they thought surely this is an omen of a fruitful season it happened that the weather was then so mild and the promise of a plenteous harvest so fair that no man ever remembered such a year before but one night the god departed in haste with his wife and all the gold and silver and fine raiment which he had got together and though the swedes made after him they could not catch him he was over the hills and far away in norway similar customs in gaul similar ceremonies appear to have been observed by the peasantry of gaul in antiquity for gregory of tours 
writing in the sixth century of our era says that at autun the people used to carry about an image of a goddess in a wagon drawn by oxen the intention of the ceremony was to ensure the safety of the crops and vines and the rustics danced and sang in front of the image the old historian identifies the goddess with Cybele, the great mother goddess of phrygia and the identification would seem to be correct for we learn from another source that men wrought up to a pitch of frenzy by their shrill musical flutes and the clash of cymbals sacrificed their virility to the goddess dashing the severed portions of themselves against their image now this religious castration was a marked feature of the phrygian worship of Cybele, but it is alien to western modes of thought although it still finds favour with a section of the barbarous fanatical semi-oriental peasantry of russia but whether of native or of eastern origin the rites of the goddess of autun closely conform to those of the great phrygian goddess and appear to have been like them a perverted form of the sacred marriage which is designed to fertilize the earth and in which eunuchs strange as it may seem personated the lovers of the goddess the custom of marrying gods to images or to living persons is found also among uncivilized peoples custom of the Wadiaks. thus the custom of marrying gods either to images or to human beings was widespread among the nations of antiquity the ideas on which such a custom is based are too crude to allow us to doubt that the civilized babylonians egyptians and greeks inherited it from their barbarous or savage forefathers this presumption is strengthened when we find rites of a similar kind in vogue among the lower races thus for example we are told that once upon a time the Wathiaks of the Malmyas district in russia were distressed by a series of bad harvests they did not know what to do but at last concluded that their powerful but mischievous god keremet must be angry at being unmarried so a deputation of elders visited the Wathiaks of kura and came to an understanding with them on the subject then they returned home laid in a large stock of brandy and having made ready a gaily decked wagon and horses they drove in procession with bells ringing as they do when they are fetching home a bride to the sacred grove at kura there they ate and drank merrily all night and next morning they cut a square piece of turf in the grove and took it home with them after this though it fared well with the people of malmyas it fell ill with the people of kura for in malmyas the bread was good but in kura it was bad hence the men of kura who had consented to the marriage were blamed and roughly handled by their indignant fellow villagers what they meant by this marriage ceremony says the writer who reports it it is not easy to imagine perhaps as Bechteru thinks they meant to marry keramet to the kindly and fruitful mokalian the earth wife in order that she might influence him for good this carrying of turf like a bride in a wagon from a sacred grove resembles the plataean custom of carting an oak log as a bride from an ancient oak forest and we have seen ground for thinking that the plataean ceremony like its watiak counterpart was intended as a charm to secure fertility when wells are dug in bengal a wooden image of a god is made and married to the goddess of water custom of the peruvian indians often the bride destined for the god is not a log or a clod but a living woman of flesh and blood the indians of a village in peru have been known to marry a beautiful girl about fourteen years of age to a stone shaped like a human being which they regarded as a god huaca all the villagers took part in the marriage ceremony which lasted three days and was attended with much revelry the girl thereafter remained a virgin and sacrificed to the idol for the people they showed her the utmost reverence and deemed her divine 
marriage of a woman to the son among the Blackfoot Indians. The Blackfoot Indians of North America used to worship the sun as their chief god, and they held a festival every year in his honour. For days before the new moon of August, the tribe halted on its march, and all hunting was suspended. Bodies of mounted men were on duty day and night to carry out the orders of the high priest of the sun. He enjoyed the people to fast and to take vapor baths during the four days before the new moon. Moreover, with the help of his council, he chose a vestal who was to represent the moon and to be married to the son of the festival. She might be either a virgin or a woman who had had but one husband. Any girl or woman found to have discharged the sacred duties without fulfilling the prescribed conditions was put to death. On the third day of preparation, after the last purification had been observed, they built a round temple of the sun. Posts were driven into the ground in a circle. These were connected with cross pieces, and the whole was covered with leaves. In the middle stood the sacred pole, supporting the roof. A bundle of many small branches of sacred wood, wrapped in a splendid buffalo robe, crowned the summit of the temple. The entrance was on the east, and within the sanctuary stood an altar on which rested the head of a buffalo. Beside the altar was the place reserved for the vestal. Here, on a bed prepared for her, she slept the sleep of war, as it was called. Her other duties consisted in maintaining a sacred fire of fragrant herbs, in presenting a lighted pipe to her husband the sun, and in telling the high priest the dream she dreamed during the sleep of war. On learning it, the priest had it proclaimed to the whole nation to the beat of drum. Marriage of girls to fishing nets among the Hurons and Algonquins Every year by the middle of March, when the season for fishing with the drag net began, the Algonquins and Hurons married their nets to two young girls aged six or seven. At the wedding feast, the net was placed between the two maidens, and was exhorted to take courage and catch many fish. The reason for choosing the brides so young was to make sure that they were virgins. The origin of the custom is said to have been this. One year, when the fishing season came round, the Algonquins cast their nets as usual, but took nothing. Surprised at their want of success, they did not know what to make of it, till the soul of genius, Oki, of that appeared to them, in the likeness of a tall, well-built man, who said to them, in a great passion, I have lost my wife, and I cannot find one who has known no other man but me. That is why you do not succeed, and why you never will succeed till you give me satisfaction on this head. So the Alquaquins held a council, and resolved to appease the spirit of the net by marrying him to two such very young girls that he could have no ground of complaint on that score for the future. They did so, and the fishing turned out all that could be wished. The thing got wind among their neighbours, the Hurons, and they adopted the custom. A share of the catch was always given to the families of the two girls who acted as brides of the net for the year. Sacred Marriage of the Sun God and Earth Goddess Among the Orions The Orions of Bengal worship the Earth as a goddess, and annually celebrate her marriage with the Sun God, Dunami, at the time when the sal trees in blossom. The ceremony is as follows. All bathe, then the men repair to the sacred grove, Sarna, while the women assemble at the house of the village priest. After sacrificing some fowls to the Sun God and the demon of the grove, the men eat and drink. The priest is then carried back to the village on the shoulders of a strong man. Near the village, the women meet the men and wash their feet. With beating of drums and singing, dancing and jumping, all proceed to the priest's house, which has been decorated with leaves and flowers. 
Then the usual form of marriage is performed between the priest and his wife, symbolizing the supposed union between sun and earth. After the ceremony, all eat and drink and make merry. They dance and sing obscene songs and finally indulge in the vilest orgies. The object is to move the mother earth to become fruitful. Thus the sacred marriage of the sun and earth personated by the priest and his wife is celebrated as a charm to ensure the fertility of the ground. And with the same purpose, on the principle of homeopathic magic, the people indulge in a licentious orgy. Among the Sulka of New Britain, at the village of Colvergat, a certain man has charge of two stone figures, which are called respectively our grandfather, Nagur S., and our grandmother, Nagur Pei. They are said to be kept in a house built specially for the purpose. Fruits of the field are offered to them and left beside them to rot. When their guardian puts the two figures with their faces turned towards each other, the plantations are believed to flourish. But when he sets them back to back, there is dearth and the people suffer from eruptions on the skin. This turning of the two images face to face may be regarded as a simple form of sacred marriage between the two divine powers represented by them, who are clearly supposed to control the fertility of the plantations. Marriage of Women to Gods in India and Africa at the village of Basdora, in the Gurugan district of northwestern India, a fair is held on the 26th of the month Chait and the two following days. We are told that formerly girls of the Dinwar class used to be married to their god at the festivals, and that they always died soon afterwards. Of late years, the practice is said to have been discontinued. In Bihar, during the month of Sawan, August, crowds of women coin themselves Nagin, or wives of the snake, go about for two and a half days begging. During this time, they may neither sleep under a roof nor eat salt. Half the proceeds of their begging is given to Brahmans, and the other half spent in salt and sweetmeats which are eaten by all the villagers. Amongst the Iwe-speaking peoples of the Slave Coast in West Africa, human wives of gods are very common. In Dahomey, they swarm, and it has even been estimated that every fourth woman is devoted to the service of some deity. The chief business of these female Butteries is prostitution. In every town there is at least one seminary where the handsomest girls between 10 and 12 years of age are trained. They stay for three years, learning the chants and dances peculiar to the worship of the gods, and prostituting themselves to the priests and the inmates of the male seminaries. At the end of their novicate, they become public harlots, but no disgrace attached to their profession, for it is believed that they are married to the god and that their excesses are caused and directed by him. Strictly speaking, they should confine their favours to the male worshippers of the temple, but in practice they bestow them indiscriminately. Children born of such unions belong to the deity. As the wives of a god, these sacred women may not marry, but they are not bound to the service of the divinity for life. Some only bury his name and sacrifice to him on their birthdays, Amongst these polygamous West African gods, the sacred python seems to be particularly associated with fertility of the earth, frees and vote in excessively wet, dry and barren seasons, and the time of year when young girls are sought to be his brides is when the millet is beginning to sprout. Women marry to water gods It deserves to be remarked that the supernatural being to whom women are married is often a god or spirit of water. Thus Makasa the god of Victoria, the Yanza Lake, who is propitiated by the Baganta every time they undertook a long voyage, had virgins provided for him to serve as his wives. 
Like the Vestals, they were bound to chastity, but unlike the Vestals, they seem to have been often unfaithful. The custom lasted until Mwanga was converted to Christianity. The Akikuyu of British East Africa worshipped the snake of a certain river, and at intervals of several years they married the snake god to women, but especially to young girls. For this purpose huts are built by order of the medicine men, who then consummate the sacred marriage with the credulous female devotees. If the girls do not repair to the huts of their own accord in sufficient numbers, they are seized and dragged thither to the embraces of the deity. The offspring of these mystic unions appears to be fathered on God, Nagai. Certainly, there are children among the Akikyu who pass for children of God. In Kentung, one of the principal Shan states of Upper Burma, the spirit of the Nongtung Lake is regarded as very powerful and is propitiated with offerings in the eighth month about July of each year. A remarkable feature of the worship of this spirit consists in the dedication of him to four virgins in marriage. Custom requires that this should be done once in every three years. It was actually done by the late king or chief, Sobois, in 1893, but down to 1901, the rite has been performed by his successor. The following are the chief features of the ceremony. The virgins who are wed to the spirit of the lake must be of pure Kon race. Orders are sent out for the Kon of the valley to attend. From these unmarried women of suitable age, ten are selected. These are as beautiful as may be, and must be without spot or blemish. Four maidens out of the ten are chosen by lot, and carefully dressed in new garments. A festival is held, usually at the house of the chief minister, where the girls sit on a raised platform. Four old women, thought to be possessed by spirits, enter and remain as long as the feast lasts. During this time, anything they may want, such as food, betel, or cheroots, is handed to them by the four girls. Apparently, the old women pass for representatives of the spirit, hence they are waited on by the maidens destined to be his wives. Dotage, blindness, or any great infirmity of age, seems to be accounted possession by a spirit for the purposes of this function. When the feast is over, the maidens are formally presented to the spirit, along with the various sacrifices and offerings. They are next taken to the chief's residence, where strings are tied round their waist by the ministers and elders to guard them against ill luck. Usually they sleep a night or two at the place, after which they may return to their homes. There seems to be no objection to their marrying afterwards. If nothing happens to any of the four, it is believed that the spirit of the lake loves them but little, but if one of them dies soon after the ceremony, it shows that she has been accepted by him. The spirit is propagated with the sacrifice of pigs, fowls, and sometimes a buffalo. Egyptian custom of drowning a girl as a sacrifice to the Nile in this last custom, the death of the woman is regarded as a sign that the god has taken her to himself. Sometimes, apparently, it has not been left to the discretion of the divine bridegroom to take or leave his human bride. She was made over to him once for all in death. When the Arabs conquered Egypt, they learned that the annual rise of the Nile, the Egyptians were wont to deck a young virgin in gay apparel and throw her into the river as a sacrifice, in order to attain a plentiful inundation. The Arab general abolished the barbarous custom. It is said that under the Tang dynasty the Chinese used to marry a young girl to the Yellow River once a year by drowning her in the water. 
For this purpose, the witches chose the fairest damsel they could find, and themselves superintended the fatal marriage. At last, the local mandarin, a man of sense of humanity, forbade the custom. But the witches disregarded his edicts and made their preparations for their usual murder. So when the day was come, the magistrate appeared on the scene with his soldiers and had all the witches bound and thrown into the river to drown, telling them that no doubt that God would be able to choose his bride for himself from among them. Girls Sacrificed as Brides of Crocodiles The Prince of Kopang, a state in the East Indian Isle of Timor, deemed themselves descended from crocodiles, and on the coronation of a new prince, a solemn sacrifice was made to the crocodiles in presence of the people. The offerings consisted of a pig with red bristles and a young girl prettily dressed, perfumed and decked with flowers. She was taken down to the bank of the river and set on a sacred stone in a cave. Then one of the prince's guards summoned the crocodiles. Soon one of the beasts appeared and dragged the girl down into the water. The people thought that he married her, and that if he did not find her a maid, he would bring her back. On festal occasions in the same state, a newborn girl was sometimes dedicated to a crocodile, and then with certain ceremonies of consecration, brought up to be married to a priest. It is said that once when the inhabitants of Kayeli in Buru, another East Indian island, were threatened with destruction by a swarm of crocodiles, they ascribed the misfortune to a passion which the prince of the crocodiles had conceived for a certain girl. Accordingly, they compelled the damsel's father to dress her in bridal ray and deliver her over to the clutches of her crocodile lover. Virgin sacrificed as a bride to the genie of the sea in the Maldive Islands. A usage of the same sort is reported to have prevailed in the Maldive Islands before the conversion of the inhabitants to Islam. The famous Arab traveller Ibn Battuta has described the custom and the manner in which it came to an end. He was assured by several trustworthy natives, whose names he gives, that when the people of the islands were idolaters, there appeared to them every month an evil spirit among the jinn, who came from across the sea in the likeness of a ship full of burning lamps. The want of the inhabitants, as soon as they perceived him, was to take a young virgin, have adorned her, to lead her to a heathen temple that stood on the shore, with a window looking out to sea. There they left the damsel for the night and when they came back in the morning they found her a maid no more and dead. Every month they drew lots, and he upon whom the lot fell gave up his daughter to the genie of the sea. In time there came to them a Berber named Abu Leberkat, who knew the Koran by heart. He lodged in the house of an old woman of the Isle of Mahal. One day visiting his hostess, he found that she had gathered her family about her, and that the women were weeping as if there were a funeral. On acquiring to the cause of their distress, he learned that the lot had fallen on the old woman, and that she had an only daughter, who must be slain by the evil genie. Abu Abelkat said to the old dame, I will go this night instead of thy daughter. Now he was quite beardless, so when the night was come, they took him, and after he had performed his evolutions, they put him in the temple of idols. He set himself to recite the Koran, then the demon appeared at the window, but the man went on with his recitation. No sooner was the genie within hearing of the holy words that he dived into the sea. When morning broke, the old woman and her family and the people of the island came, according to their custom, to carry away the girl and burn her body. They found the stranger repeating the Koran and took him to their king, whose name was Chenoraza, and made him relate his adventure. The king was astonished at it. The Berber proposed to the king that he should embrace Islam.
Genorza, said to him, tarry with us till next month. If thou shalt do what thou hast done, and shalt escape from the evil genie, I will be converted. The genie of the sea and his bride in the Maldive Islands. The stranger abode with the idolaters, and God disposed the king's heart to receive the true faith. So before the month was out, he became a Muslim man, he and his wives and his children, and the people of his court. And when the next month began, the Berber was conducted to the temple of idols, but the demon did not appear, and the Berber set himself to recite the Koran till break of day. And the sultan and his subjects broke the idols and demolished the temple. The people of the island embraced Islam and sent messages to the other isles, and their inhabitants were converted likewise. But by reason of the demon, many of the Maldive islands were depopulated before their conversion to Islam. When Ibn Batuta himself landed in the country, he knew nothing of these things. One night, he was going about his business. He heard of a sudden people saying in a loud voice, There is no God but God, and God is great. He saw children carrying copies of the Quran on their heads, and when beating on the basins and vessels of copper. He was astonished at what they did, and he said, What has happened? They answered, Dost thou not behold the sea? He looked towards the sea, and beheld in the darkness, as it were, a great ship full of burning lamps and crescents. They said to him, That is the demon. It is his wont to show himself once a month. But after we have done that which thou hast seen, he returns his place, and does us no manner of harm. The story based on the phosphorescence of the sea. It occurred to me that this myth of the demon lover may have been based on some physical phenomenon, electrical, lunar, or otherwise, which is periodically seen at night in the Maldive Islands. Accordingly, I consulted Professor J. Stanley Gardiner, a foremost authority on the archipelago. His answer, which confirms my conjecture, runs thus. A peculiar phosphorescence, like the glow of a lamp hidden by a roughened glass shade, is occasionally visible on lagoon shoals in the Maldives. I imagine it to have been due to some single animal with a greater phosphorescence than any at present known to us. A periodical appearance of some phase in the moon due to reproduction is not improbable and has parallels. The myth still exists in the Maldives, but in a rather different form. He has said a number of these animals might of course appear on some shoal near Mayo, the principal island of the group. To the eyes of the ignorant and superstitious, such a mysterious glow, suddenly lighting up the sea in the dusk of the evenings, might well appear a phantom ship, hung with burning lamps, bearing down on the diverted islands, and the stillness of the night, the roar of the surf from the barrier reef might sound in their ears, like the voice of the demon calling for its prey. End of section 7